Welcome to Advertising Will Save Us, the podcast that looks at how the ad industry can move the world forward culturally, socially, environmentally, creatively, all the ease. I'm Myra Nussbaum, President and Chief Creative Officer of Havas Chicago. Hi, and I'm Dan Lucy, Chief Creative Officer of Havas New York. So every week we'll be speaking to a different inspiring business leader, creative, ad tech, watchdog, activist, etc., to show how advertising as an industry and through its power to reach millions of people can, however ironic, save us. We hope you enjoy it and, hey, maybe you will even learn something. But first, let's acknowledge some of our misgivings. We asked people on social what they find problematic with advertising, and we got some really great answers, many of which we were not surprised by. Like for years, you only ever saw white people in ads. This is something we are aware of, and as an industry, we are trying desperately to fix. The reason there were mostly white people in the ads is because mostly white people were making the ads. So we saw a lot of comments from people online talking about this. And we wanted to call out one in particular from a really great strategist here in Chicagoland named Archana Mahadeva. She said that for her, the most frustrating thing is the gatekeeping mindset of advertising. Funny for an industry that is probably built for misfits that there is still a certain type of gatekeeping that keeps great talent from entering. While that is changing rapidly, if we are truly talking about saving us from society's challenges, then we need to adapt quicker and bring in more diversity of skill sets. I think she's right, Dan. She brings up a lot of good points, and it's a great quote for our guest. Yes, we're going to unpack this topic today with our guest, Oriel. But we want to hear more of these beefs with the industry. Please, please tweet us at Havas, hashtag advertising will save us, and tell us what you think we should fix about advertising. Or email us at podcastfeedback at Havas.com. Okay, so our guest this episode is Oriel Davis-Lyons. In 2020, he joined Spotify, where he is now head creative of podcast and talk. Prior to that, he worked at Droga5 and RGA, but Oriel is not just an incredible creative. He's also working to make our industry fairer and more representative. Frustrated that the price tag uh, attached to two years of ad school is $40,000. I can't believe that. 40 Gs. What that meant is that advertising ends up recruiting from a tiny portion of the vast talent out there, right? Not everybody could afford 40 Gs to go to ad school. So he founded the One School in 2020 as an intensive portfolio program designed to teach black creatives the skills required to work at the world's top agencies. Oriel, thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome to Advertising Will Save Us. Thank you, guys. Great to have you. Um, you know, you're here today to talk about whether advertising can save us, and by us, we mean society, right? I mean, we have an opportunity to lead the way and hire more diverse people into our industry and kind of be the beacon of hope and how things should be uh, for the rest of the corporate world. I guess basically we're saying is can advertising – um, save the corporate world from being pale, male, and stale. And I believe those are your words, Oriole, because I, I believe I am a little bit pale and male. So I say that with a little- But you didn't say stale, Dan. You're, you're never stale. I, didn't say, I left that out, Myra. I chose to <laughs> leave the stale out. Can advertising save us from being pale, male, and stale, Oriole? I hope so. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, it's a big question. I don't. I think there's still room in the future for- you know, pale males. I think there's there should be room for everyone, really. I think that's the goal. It's not, it's more about kind of uh, uh, everyone having a seat, right? And that's kind of the path I've been on for the last couple of years. 
which is an amazing path. And you started a school, the one school, and the whole purpose of the school is to get more black creatives into advertising. Maybe just talk about that a little bit and, and your inspiration and how that came about. And is that, I guess it's a couple of years now. It is. It's um, almost just over two years, actually. So, I mean, it was really the product of, you know, the summer of 2020. I think uh, a lot of people, myself included, were kind of feeling the need to do something and do more, right, than we'd been doing previously. And, um, you know, I spent a couple of weeks out protesting, right, with everyone and, and eventually had to go back to my day job, you know. And I didn't want to leave that feeling of activism and change and, like, feel like I was just going back to business as usual. So, I kind of thought about, you know, how this systemic racism and bias manifests in my daily life, right? How do I experience it? And when I looked around, you know, as a creative director, you can see it in the departments, right? You can see it just in the lack of black creatives that, you know, any given agency has. But then I, you know, I kind of looked at the work that we do and so much of it leans on and is influenced by and in many cases appropriates black culture. So for me, I kind of felt like, okay, this is something I can at least attempt to change. So um, it actually just started with a, a post on LinkedIn, just offering to help young black creatives really who wanted to put portfolios together, but didn't have the $40,000 it costs to go to a, you know, established portfolio school and didn't have the two years that that would take. I didn't really know how I would do it beyond that. The goal was not to start a school. It was just an offer of help. And then I was kind of just going to figure it out depending on who responded. And we got a lot of responses. I got a lot of responses and I, I was like, oh shit, I got, I got to do something now. So we started with Zoom calls, just, you know, a bunch of people on Zoom. This was July, 2020. And uh, I think the first one was just Portfolios 101. You know, and it was just like, here is some things that you could do right now to make your portfolio look better and give you hopefully a better chance, right, of just getting in the door. And then we followed it up with a couple more classes. I roped in some friends to come and talk. And then eventually the one club reached out and they'd seen the post and they'd seen some of the classes and they were like, let's do this officially. Let's, you know, make it a school. We'll give you the support, the infrastructure and, uh, I think, yeah, we came up with one school and it was a weekend building a website and we were open for applications, I think like maybe three weeks after we had the first call. So it was all very much like just building as we go with a little bit of a, not much plan, but a lot of, I guess, vision. You know, we knew where we wanted to get to eventually and we're still here. I'm curious because I didn't see your initial post, but I did see... Uh, when it became official through the one club and the one school handle. Um, so I thought you had done it with them from the beginning, but who was it? Do you remember who contacted you from the one club to say, let's do this? Yeah, of course. The first person I spoke to was Bob Isherwood, right. who, yeah, is a, a, an absolute legend. And um, we hopped on a call. I was actually, you know, upstate for like a month in a Airbnb in the woods with bad signal, but we kind of jumped on a call. And I think the first time I spoke to him felt like I'd known him for a long time, you know, and I could feel even without meeting in person, I could feel like his passion for the whole idea. And um, we 
quickly kind of got into a, a groove of like getting this thing, you know, up and running. And then next, of course, it was uh, meeting the rest of the team, Kevin and uh, Tony, uh, rest in peace. But yeah. Yes. Tony's a great guy. All, all of the One Club people are great. And I thought, what an awesome partner for you to have, because obviously they champion creativity at its highest level. But it kind of gave me, I mean, I knew they were nice guys, but they're also a lot of pale males. But it definitely increased my admiration for that group to, to back you on your mission. And then can you talk about, I'm here in Chicago. You started on the East Coast, but then you kind of rolled it out nationwide. Was that all in the summer of 2020 or what was the timeline? So the first two schools, we kind of initially started with just the idea that it would be New York based, even though it's all remote, it's all online, that we would start in New York, right? Because that's where I was, that I was going to teach the first class. But I mean, we kind of got overwhelmed with the response. You know, the number of people who reached out from all around the country asking if there was one in their time zone or how could they be involved. I think we very quickly realized that there was a greater need. And as long as we could find the people, you know, the actual infrastructure of the school is it's a Zoom call, right? And that's the beauty of it. And that's the power of it, that it's all about just the people, right? So uh, we were very lucky to find Es Blaine, yeah. who was in LA at that time. And I didn't know him. I was introduced to him. And the first thing I kind of asked him was like, hey, do you want to be a teacher at this school that we're starting? And you don't know me, but I'm sure it's going to be a good idea. And he was down from like the first call. And we started with New York and LA and they ran kind of side by side. Uh, for 16 weeks for that first semester. And then after that, we introduced Chicago. And then after that, I think we introduced Atlanta. So now we have four programs, yeah. And uh, each one runs kind of once a year. Sounds like it's you're doing an amazing job. Thank you. But you're now expanding to all different cities. Do you feel like it's starting to have a little bit of an impact? Are you placing people? It sounds like enrollment's way up. Do you, do you wanna talk a little bit about the impact you've seen so far? Yeah. Um, yeah, we just got some stats actually just recently because, you know, we're at the two-year mark and we always like to know what our grads are doing. And to date, I believe we've graduated 105 students. We have a 75% higher rate uh, at the moment and 65% of our grads are black women. And Great. I, I gave a talk actually, I gave an update, you know, just to a few people last week or a couple of weeks ago. And I was going through all the just all the news and it's kind of hard to keep track of it all, you know, as it's happening. But then I, when I looked back and I was like, oh yeah, we had grads, you know, put out spots for the NBA holiday campaign, right? We had a graduate write a Super Bowl spot. Amazing. Um, our grads are at Apple and Facebook and the top agencies. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is, it's now the first people who've gone, who went through the program and now over a year into their careers, and are starting to actually do the work and put out those, you know, those campaigns. And then, yeah, I get to kind of see that pop up and think, oh, okay, this is, this is working. Yeah. That's probably the most rewarding part actually is knowing that every part of their success is I'm going to get to enjoy. I wanted to ask you, I know you weren't in Cannes uh, this year, but there were some big announcements there with the creative ladder being announced, uh, backed by Ryan Reynolds and I believe Bloomberg is supporting it. Um, there was also Inkwell Beach. I don't know if you were following any of that activity, but I heard from a lot of friends, uh, black creatives and 
black account people, that it was the first time they've seen real representation at Cannes. Do you think this is not just a one-off experience? What do you think? Are you feeling there's been a shift? I'm hesitant to say there's been a shift, right? Um, I think it's going to take a little longer for that to really be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is like a, a prioritizing, you know, of, you know, black and brown voices and representation. So you are starting to see, you know, in places where maybe they, you know, would have been pushed to the edges, right? They're kind of getting a bit more center stage, you know, and um, I think that's great. But overall, it is it is a long game, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I watched Khan, I didn't go, but, I, you know, I watched it and I love watching all the winning work. I, I really, you know, it's like the most award season is still kind of the most inspiring part of the year, you know, for what we do. But, you know, I, for me, like I want to see my students up on those stages, you know, like for me, that's that's when the the shift will be most evident, right, is when my graduates are up there as CDs, ECDs, CCOs, collecting awardsable levels, right? And that's kind of what I'm focused on. And that's, yeah, that's a kind of a 10-year plan, really. And But it, it is great to see just the diversity of voices getting a bit more space at the top of the bill. Yeah, I think we have a long way to go to actually make real change. Agree. I I, um, I know Myra and I are both bullish on the industry, though. I mean, if you look at a lot of the work that's winning in Cannes, it has some kind of social good element to it. And it seems like that's the work that resonates most with the judges and and I think with our community. And and Oriel, you've done a lot of that kind of great work. I mean, you've you've done some amazing work, you know, the don't look away kind of campaign and, and you've always had that like social good infused into the voter work you did with Spotify. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that and like how you've when you approach the industry, did you feel a responsibility to um not just hawk products but kind of like put some a good some good messaging out in the world? I mean we're reaching millions of people, there is a responsibility to kind of craft our message. I think that's it. It's just knowing that you have that, not only the responsibility, but the opportunity. And I genuinely believe in like the power of what we do, right? As creatives, we can sell anything. Like I've sold my share of flat screen TVs, you know, like, but I also believe that we are that bridge between say sometimes policy, you know, that can feel a little dry and a little disconnected from reality. And we can find ways to make that emotional, make it mean something and tell human stories about it, make people connect to it. And I've always enjoyed that part of it. I've never got into it because I wanted to just do cause related work. I think like I look at my book and it's kind of 50-50 and I actually enjoy just stuff that is kind of dumb for the sake of it. You know, like I really think that's important that we have to be able to do that stuff as well. But when I do feel that there is an issue that I care deeply about, I turn to kind of what I know, which is creative advertising. And I try and use that to not solve it, but at least help people maybe connect to that issue in a way that you can't in other channels, right? Or through other mediums. So sometimes I have a bit of hesitation, like with the amount of cause related work that does win, right? Because I think there is like when you see that most of the work that you know, people are up on stage for is, has got some sort of cause attached to it. You're kind of like, well, I need to find a cause to win an award. Right. And that's always a a bit of a slippery slope. I think it's a, a really 
tricky relationship, mm-hmm. you know, that comes down to just the individual creatives. And but um, I still believe in the importance of it. Like our role, you know, as communicators, as people who can take in something complex, simplify it, and make it human, make it emotional, and give a lot of people a way to understand it. I think that is where we are really important. I think that's right. And, and I agree with you. You can't just um, take up a cause to win an award. I think that's the slippery, dangerous slope. You know, what I find, and I think it's really amazing, is that, you know, a little, a little bit different than when I started. I think that the employees that I work with have so much energy to message around the causes they believe in that they're constantly, and I'm encouraging them to, they come to me with ideas and I I love it when we can make them happen and I could find a home and a, a cause or, or a brand to, mm-hmm. to talk about the cause, whatever feels most authentic, and then kind of fund those ideas. We just did something around LGBTQ rights and it's called Bury the Bills, just we partnered with NYC Pride. And that, and that was born out of the need to say something because there's been 300 laws that are trying to be passed throughout the United States that are going to set those rights back. And that's something that I feel we do as people who are supposed to be the experts on messaging, we have a responsibility to kind of uh, act on and say something. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about this pipeline issue. I'm sure you've heard this. A lot of excuses get made as to why there aren't as many black creatives in agencies. It's a pipeline issue. I think partially that's true. And I think that's why your school will make such a big impact. But do you think it's more than that? Can you speak to inclusivity and even speaking through your experience, like are agencies prepared to handle the pipeline now that it's here and people are coming in? Um, what do you think agencies need to do to support the black talent they're recruiting? Uh, yeah, I have some issue with the idea that it's a pipeline issue. Mm-hmm. Like it is a pipeline problem. I mean, yes, maybe previously there were issues with that pipeline, right? But the idea that now that there is a pipeline, it's that the industry is suddenly fixed. And for me, the the mark of success is not how many you know black creatives you have in your department. It's like how yeah. long are they there? Are they going to go up on stage? Are they going to be up on stage in a couple of years? Are they getting promoted? You know, I think if you have this kind of revolving door of black talent, then there's a, it's not a pipeline issue; it's a cultural issue. And I think that is the part that I can't do anything about. You know, there's not a school for that, right? That's down to the leaders, right? Of these agencies and the people who ultimately drive that culture to prioritize creating a culture or or look at the culture and look at where it might be, you know, not just like hostile, but try and see their own culture through the eyes of like a young black creative, black or brown creative, you know, or gay, to be honest, or or female creatives. Like if, if you're in the minority, right, and you're coming into a place where the culture is defined by mostly men, mostly white, you have to learn pretty quickly how to fit into that, you know, and I spent most of my career trying to fit in, you know, and trying to convince other people that I could, I could fit in, I could be in these rooms and I can, I get the jokes and all that kind of stuff. So, someone at the top looking down, they might see a completely healthy place, right? They see the work is good, they see people having fun at happy hour and all that kind of stuff. But if you're not really looking at, okay, well, why are all our black and brown creatives leaving after 18 months or two years? If you're not really actually kind of interrogating that, and if you're not saying to 
your ECDs and CDs, hey, you're not just responsible for the quality of the work, you're responsible for the quality of the culture here. And if we have this retention problem, or if we're not getting in and keeping and promoting great diverse talent, then you're not doing your job. I think that's the kind of shift I think we have to make is it, we can't just be so focused on the outcome and the work that we produce that we ignore that the process by which that work is produced can sometimes be like hostile to a lot of young diverse talent. Um, yeah. And that's, that's the biggest change. And that's the thing that I sometimes worry about is that I'm, I can only do so much to prepare my students and I try and give them like the reality check, you know, I'm like, look, you're going to, this class that we, that we get into every Tuesday and Thursday night where it's like all black creatives, it's a safe space. We have great conversations. I'm like, this is not the industry. Like you are going to go from here and you're going to go into a place that's probably, you're going to be one of two or three, maybe if you're lucky. Yeah. What's the advice you could give me to not push my white woman ways on them or make them feel like <laughs> they can't relate? I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. What What advice for me and Dan? I guess, you know, like I've never gone into anywhere thinking or expecting that all these people who don't have my background, that they're somehow going to understand me, right? I'm not expecting mm -hmm. that. You don't have to try and understand every single reference. Like we're not trying to get into each other's past, but what you can be is an advocate for that person, mm -hmm. right? And like the, I think the, you know, being in those meetings where you can throw in a good word for someone and say, hey, you know what? We should put that person on this brief. This would be a great opportunity for them. I think that's what I would say to most people, like that is the most valuable form of not mentorship necessarily, but just being an advocate for them. Yeah. Because I think it happens naturally. Like you said, it happens naturally when you see yourself in someone. When you go, oh, look, I, I grew up three towns over or we went to that same summer camp or yeah, I watched every episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> and, with, and without those connection points, it's harder to then kind of naturally uh, see yourself as a mentor, right? So mm -hmm. that's kind of what I always struggled with was I just didn't fall into that category for anyone because I have a quite a weird background. So I was always struggling to find that connection where that someone would be my mentor naturally. Whereas for other people, it just happened, you know, and yeah. they didn't think about it. They didn't think twice to say, Hey, we should put Dan on that brief, you know? So I, I think, yeah not trying to be a friend or, you know, be a, a shoulder to cry on necessarily. Like maybe you'll get there, but I think the first step is just being an advocate, using your own influence and power and voice in the agency for someone who maybe just won't have that. I think that's great advice to make sure that you're not just mentoring the people that are most like you. Yep but you're even aware that there might be someone who doesn't have a mentor. I think that's, I think this is really good advice and, and I could certainly take that away. Um, you know, you went brand side and I think it's so important to have different kind of um, people at top of an agency and different leadership. A little putting you on the spot here. You, you like it brand side? You come <laughs> back to an agency? Where, where do you um, see your career going? I, d I mean, I do. I know you're very happy <laughs> yeah. at Spotify. You guys do yeah. great work. I know all that. I know you're not going to leave anytime soon, but just uh, what, what do you think? I do. I do like it. I really like, I think I realize now having been on the side, 
how sometimes disconnected I felt from decisions that were made about my work, right? When I was mm-hmm. on the agency side, like we'd race to a presentation, you know, with all the bells and whistles and it would almost like disappear into a black hole for like a week or so. And it'd come back with a bunch of notes and you have no idea why those notes are the way they are or, you know, like they may completely contradict everything you thought as well. And it's like now having been on this side, I get to be in those conversations about the notes that we're going to put on the work, except it is the work that myself and my team, you know, and all the creatives are doing. So I'm kind of like connected throughout the whole process. And I've really enjoyed that, you know, and being able to have an influence or being able to even just talk through some of that that feedback or those hesitations before it becomes a note on a deck that destroys a creative idea, you know? Mm. I really like that. I love not pitching. <laughs> you know, that's been really nice, you know, a nice break for a couple of years. So, but I, you know, I, I enjoy like both sides of it. Like for me, it's the creative part of the job is the best part of the job. So being in, a, in an agency surrounded by great creatives like that, it doesn't feel much different to be honest, because that's what I'm doing at Spotify. So as long as I have that, I think I can imagine being pretty happy in most places. Yeah, 100%, 100%. You do, I mean, Spotify is a great in-house agency. You guys do a lot of tremendous work. You're not just managing other agencies. You're, you're really doing some brilliant stuff there. So that'll make sense. Yeah, and, and I and I hear you. I, I think, you know, I think some of those things that frustrated you about our industry, I try to head off because they also frustrate me. I try to include people, let them know about comments, get on the phone with the client, talk through their comments. I feel like that always helps. Mm-hmm. And uh, pitches have to be fun because they're so important. Right. Yeah. Right. It's it's the lifeblood of an agency. And it's like, it can't just be the, hey, sign up to like work till two in the morning for the next 14 days. It's got to, we have to find a way as an industry. But I wanted to kind of, I think we talked on it a little bit and, and, and you know, maybe, and maybe we've hit all the points, but, but I w- you said something earlier um, and I think it's so important. I, you know, I guess, I guess I was a bit surprised. I mean, so much of advertising features black athletes uses music from black artists, is selling products geared towards a black audience, but yet there wasn't that representation creating the work. There wasn't the, so I, you know, I think I was a bit surprised to be honest with you when I was first getting into the industry that I didn't see that many black creatives because I would grow up watching, you know, Nike commercials, Jordan commercials, whatever it was. But so I think it's, I think it's changing, but not fast enough, clearly. What do you think held what do you think held it back for all those years? Do you think it's like is it really like a heavy answer or is it is it just even like do people know about this career? I didn't know about this career in high school. No, I, I didn't know. Um it was almost by chance, you know, that I found out that you could be a creative. People essentially pay you to kind of sit around thinking of fun ideas. Like I had no clue that that was a job until I was in my mid twenties. So that's a big issue. And, you know, I, I would also say there's a lot of it is by design, right? It was gate kept intentionally. Mm. Like if you look at the industry, the way that you get in traditionally has been either you know someone, mm-hmm. right? You know, you, your dad's best friend owns an agency and suddenly you've got an internship, right? Yeah. Um, even just the fact that, I mean, it's better now, I think, because internships are paid generally. But previously it was like, no, you got to work for free to prove that you can be here. Who can work for free in a in a big city? Yeah, like probably someone who's already got some sort of financial support, right? So 100%. there was just all these 
all these ways that I think the industry was deliberately keeping black and brown creatives out. You know, it, I don't think it was just like this kind of accident, like, oh, whoops, uh, we hadn't realized. And yeah, you can see the fact that it was intentional because like you said, the industry has benefited so much from black culture, black music, black art, right? And black celebrities, like we know the benefit that black culture has and the black community has on brands and on what we do. And there was no, there were no whistleblowers back then. There was nobody calling bullshit on it. Everybody accepted it. Uh, They may not have even thought it was intentional. It was just biases that they had and didn't see anything wrong with. But I do love that we're in this era where you will get busted. People should be worried about the things they say in meetings. Like I think the Richards group, not to call them out, there have been a lot of other uh, issues around cultural, you know, people, it's not appropriation, but, you know, the parties that are had that like they're, they think they're trying sure. to embrace black culture and make decisions on what's black and what's not, but they're not black. And that's, mm-hmm. you're not going to get away with it anymore. I'm sure mm-hmm. there's certain things sneaking by, yeah. but I, I just love that we're in an era where you're going to get called out and the repercussions are going to be massive. My only kind of add on to that, I think, is that I hope that people are doing the right thing, not out of the fear of being called out. You know, I think that's what I'm waiting to see, right? Is that, Mm. are we doing this because we're, we know that we can't show up now to a pitch with a room full of white dudes because we won't win the pitch? Or are we doing it because we believe that bringing black creatives into the pitch will make our work better? Mm. I still see both. I still, I see some places really embracing the idea that, or the belief, you know, that diversity of all kinds is actually better for the work. And I, I think I see places that are also like, all our clients are asking us for where our senior black leadership is. We need to get them in here right now, yeah. you know? Um, because if the clients weren't asking, yeah. would they be doing it? You I know? mean, I don't know. As a female creative, I was definitely put on a lot of femme care pitches. I was put on all the CPG pitches once I became a mom, you know, it's, but, yeah. And I knew I was a token female sure, creative. Yeah. But guess what? It ended up working out. Now I'm a CCO of a company. So I guess it's like they may yeah. have had the wrong motivations, but it did work out a little bit. And then with movements like the 3% conference, that helped as well. Right. But I yeah. hope I totally hear you. It should be because they believe in the talent. Yeah. It may be both right now. Yeah. And Ultimately, that will lead to a an acceptance, hopefully. Yeah. You know, I think, like, obviously, you were able to make the most of it, right? Because you're obviously incredibly talented and strong. I think, like, the challenge oh, is... Uh... I'm going to hear the end of that. Oriel said so, Dan. <laughs> she doesn't need it. Oriel, she doesn't need any of this. Right. You guys gotta, you can, you can edit that bit out. Um, but... Uh, Yes, some people will make the most of those like opportunities where they may have been brought in as a token gesture, but they grab that opportunity and they make the most of it and there they go. But there are those people who are brought in and, and they, they don't. And they're yeah. kind of like, I'm here as a token. That's really deflating. And then they're gone. So I don't have any like great solution for that. You know, I think it's just because I know that no black creative would want to take a job or be given a job because they felt like they were filling a a, a diversity seat, right? Yeah. You want to, and that's what we, and yeah. the reason that we say to our students is like, 
we push them hard. I'm like, you have to be creatively excellent. You know, we don't want you being hired to fill someone's need for black creatives. We want you to be hired because you've got the best books that they've seen out of all the portfolio schools, you know? So we really like push that. Yeah. So right now applications are open for our uh, Atlanta and Chicago uh, fall classes. And you can find out all the information you need to know at oneschoolus.com. If you don't get in for fall, you can apply again in spring for New York and LA. That's that's fantastic. Well, I guess one final question we always ask our guests, and, and is that is, uh, is advertising, um, will it save us from being pale, male, and stale in this case? It sounds like we're doing a lot and you're seeing a little bit of uptick in diversity, but it seems like there's clearly a lot of work to do. Are you feeling Are you feeling good about where things are, at least the direction they're heading? I am, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. The industry and everyone in it is smart enough to figure this out. So there you have it, Oriel Davis Lyons. Uh, verdict on whether advertising will save us. I think I think he gave a cautious maybe. What, what do you think, Myra? I mean, I'm gonna lean toward yes-ish. I gotta be optimistic about this one because I do know it's going to make a huge difference in what ads look like and what they sound like, right? We need to be more representative. At the end of the day, that's what brands need to succeed. And the, the sooner our industry reflects the actual people out there buying things, the better advertising will be for everybody. Okay, so we have one more segment to wrap it up, and we call it The Kids Are All Right. And um, this is where we bring on somebody very new to the industry, and we ask them how they will change it for the better. This week, we have DeAndre Washington. He's an intern at Myra's office, the Havas Chicago office. He joined um, Havas fresh from the one school, which Oriel obviously founded. So my name is DeAndre Washington. I am an art director intern at Havas. To mention a campaign. So when we got in, like the first project they put us on, it was supposed to be a passion project. And I, I immediately knew I was just like, I kind of want to help people. And um, I'm black. So I, I decided I wanted to try to help and push to help out more black people. And that's kind of my goal through throughout all of this, honestly. So the passion project is um, we're, we're all together on a little team and this project is called therapy. Uh, so the idea behind it is black mental health has been something that's been stigmatized over years and years of, you know, different reasons. So my team and I came up with the idea that <laughs> when you go to a barber shop or getting your hair done, what's the one thing that you do already? You're going to talk to your barber or your hairdressers. So we figured why not push that narrative forward and kind of get the people who are doing the hair to sort of nudge other black people in the direction of even talking about mental health, opening up the conversation so that it's like a more casual thing and we can at least not break the stigma, but we can at least make a dent to help out, you know, in that case. And um, that is how I want to change the world or, or at least the start of it. DeAndre is the best and just a prime example of how the industry needs to open its doors and help train the next generation of black creatives. Obviously, DeAndre didn't have that, even that four-year degree, traditional degree, but has so much experience with art and drawing and Comic-Con and comic books and a really crazy big imagination. 
and is getting their start, you know, at age 30 in an industry that they didn't even know about last year. Advertising Will Save Us is an Intelligent Squared production in partnership with Havas US. The producers are Isabella Soames, Yosula Alarenshola, and technical assistance from Mark Roberts. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend, tell that friend to tell that friend, and so on. Um, and please, all of you, subscribe and leave us a glowing review, or at least email us and tell us uh, what you'd rather hear. Hold up. 